Top of the morning to ye on this gray, drizzly afternoon. Kent O. Brockman, live on Main Street, where today everyone is a little bit Irish, except, of course, for the gays and the Italians. Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is our And we are recording for Contrarians Corner for The Commitments. Hello, and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my friend and cohort, my brother in the contrary, Julio Oliveira. Is today a musical episode, Julio? Are we going to be singing our review? How could we not? At this point, if you don't have uh, Mustang Sally stuck in your head, Mustang Sally! <laughs> itching to come out of your mouth. Then, then you were not paying attention during the movie. It is 1991's The Commitments, directed by Alan Parker. Based Sir Alan Parker. Sir Alan Parker. Based on the novel The Commitments by Roddy Doyle. The screenplay, he actually contributed to the screenplay as well, along with Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenius. Ian, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name there. Uh, starring... <laughs> Nobody we've ever seen in a movie before. Well, that is not true at all. But I, that's right. I, that's right. That's right. Chief O'Brien is in it. Colm Meany is in this, uh, rejoining the Contrarians after his very positively reviewed appearance in The Damned United. I forget that he liked him. Yeah, I forget that he played Aldous Snow's dad and get him to the Greek. Um. <laughs> We do have someone else that once I bring it to your attention, you're going to be like, oh, shit. So hang tight, my friend. That's right. I mean, uh, the Contrarians haven't really dipped their toes in Irish cinema. We've done what? Sing Street? That might have been the only one that that qualifies as an Irish movie covered on the show. You think of anything else? Uh, I have to be very careful with my words and confusion here because the Irish and the British get very offended if you cross (laughs) them up. So one moment, please. The guard, Brendan Gleeson's Irish. I knew it. <laughs> yeah, but that's because he was in like uh, in Bruges and that Banshees movie, and you know, with uh, Colin Farrell, who's Irish. I I figured as much, but I needed to confirm it because, like I said, you look like a real asshole to the Irish if you call him British, <laughs> and you look like a real dick to the British if you call him Irish. Okay, but we we are pretty certain that Don Cheadle is not Irish, right? I mean, who's to say, really? <laughs> he may be a really good actor. <laughs> yes. 
Where's old Don from? From Kansas City, Missouri. You don't get much more American than that, brother. He made the trip all the way to Irishland. And uh, and now, I guess, Ireland is returning the favor, coming to visit the contrarians. There's a kind of infamous clip from the press junket for Inception, where it's Tom Hardy and Cillian Murphy being interviewed together. Is it Cillian or Killian? I've heard it said both ways. I just go with Killian because it sounds cooler. Okay. Killian Murphy and Tom Hardy and the interviewer is like here with two English actors and they both start shaking their head no and the guy's just like well you know uh, it's you know similar parts of the world and Murphy's just like well I'm Irish and he's like all right well two you know northern European and they just keep shaking their head no like you know don't <laughs> compare me to that guy <laughs> but why what's causing all this why, why are we here today the patron takeover continues and Julio, one of our patrons, has taken it upon themselves at our request to take 1991's The Commitments and demand we give it the full contrarian's treatment. Yes. Uh, Stephen Holbert, he waited patiently for his turn to just bring up a movie that we'd never heard of. See, I, I, I was about to make assumptions about Stephen. I was going to say, <laughs> he said, this is my culture. Talk about it on your show. And But I don't know. I don't know if Stephen is Irish. I don't know what, what kind of connection he has to the commitments. I just know that when asked for a movie to be covered in the show, this is what he came up with. Did he just want to hear us squirm as we try to, uh, as we try to navigate the minefield, apparently, that is... All the divisions across Europe? Maybe. We have. He did send us a message over on Patreon, so we'll read that uh, when we get to Real Talk. But Stephen, here we are. We made it to The Commitments, a movie that's the first time for both of us, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. And that it, and that was Julio making assumptions, not me. I'm, I am still uh, pure in this argument, and I'm sure <laughs> I will put foot in mouth at some point, but we're, we're good for now. 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, I believe I read earlier today. It is 90% fresh. It's a fresh tomato, 40-something reviews on the website. Available for free on Hoopla if you have a library card here in Austin, Texas. That gives you access to that uh, to that virtual library. And uh, second time we've used Hoopla, the first time was for our Dangerous Liaisons episode on Patreon. Ah, yes. This has been your uh, 30-second promo for Hoopla. You're welcome. <laughs> the Commitments is a vibrantly funny and blissfully heartfelt ode to the power of music is the critics' consensus on Rotten Tomatoes, and I think that is uh, one way of looking at it. I think it's also <laughs> a meandering movie that doesn't really teach you anything in the end, except that kids are stupid. So <laughs> You didn't know that. No, I know. I, I learned it. So, well, what I learned is Irish kids are just as stupid as American kids. So. Yeah, that's the real... Yeah, that's a revelation there. Here, we're just so used to assuming that Europe is so much better. Like we say America is better, but deep down we know that Europe has it better. <laughs> uh, it, and now there's a movie from Europe that comes and it's like, no, no, we're all the same. I believe it's supposed to be based in 1987. Uh, that's when the novel came out. And um, if you kind of take notes of the things that are popular in culture there, it makes sense. Guns really? N' Roses. Okay, I was about to say Guns N' Roses. Isn't that more 90s? Nah, man. Welcome to the Jungle came out in 1987. And that's... Uh, what? Yeah, dude. Appetite for Destruction came out in 1987. My God. Like, was it just super popular for years on end? Or did we get it really late in Peru? Uh, I was a teenager when that movie I, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to wager to bet it's both of those. <laughs> but it, it does also, though, like some of the punks that are portrayed in this movie 
maybe I like punk had just got to Ireland, but the, that would have been way more of like a late seventies aesthetic. So figure it out. I want to tell you a story. Oh, I already, I'm looking at my notes here and I already did put foot and mouth. I said cliched England and then crossed out England and put Ireland. So, uh, (laughs) my apologies to the damn bleeding British and the drinkers of Ireland. Uh, so before we offend more people across the world, uh, (laughs) let's explain what it is we do here on the contrarians here. We like to rage against the rotten tomatoes machine. That is our battle cry. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as Certified Fresh, and you best believe the Commitments has that wonderful IP, that logo there, the Certified Fresh. And what we'll do with those movies is bring them down to size, discuss things about the movie that maybe don't work for us, be it poor acting, direction, storytelling, questionable narratives, movies that drag and drag and drag, poor pacing, which I feel is something that's going to come up in this one, whatever it takes to make our case. Conversely, find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is lowly rated, usually about 30% and below, one of those nasty green splotches known as Rotten, and you guessed it, we'll try to make a positive argument for that movie, find the positive merit and make a case for maybe why the critics got this one wrong, be it good acting, surprising acting, bold storytelling choices, score, soundtrack, um, just general cinematography, whatever it takes, we're going to make the case. We do this for two reasons, namely, one. This Rotten Tomato system, it doesn't always tell the whole story. Can't really grade in the entirety of a movie on a scale of one to one hundred, uh, like you would like a test, because there's, it's a movie. It doesn't get every other question right, or it doesn't get ninety percent of the questions right. So that's one. Number two, it's art. It's subjective. You can be as just positive and glowing and over the moon about something as you want to be, or as downright cynical and negative about something if you truly set your mind to it. So we try to push the bounds and test that theory to the the highest extent. Uh, Julio, that comprises part one, the first half of each episode that we do. We call that Contrarian's Corner. If listeners want to know how we really feel about the movie du jour, in this case, the commitments, they just need to stick around for the second half, part two. That is correct. Part two of every episode, aptly titled Real Talk, is where we tell you how we really feel. We forget about the Run Tomato score. We drop the gimmick and we just go through our experience watching the movie. And not just that, but that's also where you get to find out how the person that requested the movie feels about it. So, you know how Steven describes his connection to the commitments? That's where you find out in real talk. Before that, though, it's Concerns Corner. This movie's fresh. So we're going to say really mean things about it. I don't know if mean, but just just critiques. I mean, Jesus, they drink Jameson in this, so we don't have to go too much higher up for quality whiskey. <laughs> can keep in the Irish theme and drink a proper 12. That's Conor McGregor's whiskey because he's not extremely problematic or psychotic. <laughs> but also, he's not period appropriate. <laughs> it's true. Uh, I don't even think he owns that anymore. So I think his name's on it, but he sold the rights to it. So it's all good, folks. All right, 90%. Before we get to our feelings, Julio, the distinguished critics of the tomato meter what were they saying they liked it they really liked it alex it's (laughs) and that's the end of the episode (laughs) uh here's a few fresh tomatoes from the run tomatoes webpage i was going to start with travis johnson from sbs.com.au says at base the commitments is about the common experiences and emotions that unite us this guy didn't watch the end of the movie (laughs) 
Yeah, what the fuck are you talking about, man? It's the opposite of being united. It all falls apart. Brian McKay from eFilmCritic.com says, A surprisingly blissful combo of Brit humor and soul music. How about that? Is he crossing a line by calling it Brit humor? I mean, it's close. Let's see here. Well, Alan Parker's English, so... (laughs) Muddling the waters here. And Dick Clement, Ian Lafrenius, and... Okay, Roddy Doyle's Irish. So maybe this was like, you know... A thoughtful collaboration. Elvis shaking hands with Nixon, like, you know, uniting two sides of the party. It's a Uh, good reference, considering Elvis gets called out during this movie several times. I just reference that picture for basically any time someone shakes hands, like two like monolithic <laughs> figures shake hands. So maybe this was like a peace offering between England and Ireland. There you go. Perhaps, but just as well. I mean, something that we've established throughout the Contrarian's run is that there's no such thing as Brit humor. I mean, British movies are about gangsters, violence. This is not one of them. So I am more inclined to call this Irish humor or Irish filmmaking as far as sold music well stay tuned because that's a big part of the conversation next janet maslin from new york times says mr parker is capable of whipping a series of quick well-edited snippets into a happy collage of musical high spirits would you say this whole movie is a collage no because a collage you kind of look at it and move on this movie takes two hours to get through it's a collage that keeps you captive there you go i'm gonna close with the great the inimitable roger ebert from the chicago sun times who says as music and human comedy it works just fine that is i know it's a fresh tomato and if you read it just superficially that seems like a like a compliment like a good comment but honestly we know roger ebert around these parts we know what he could do with words this just sounds half-hearted as praise (laughs) it works just fine that might as well be a rotten comment Siskel combated a thumbs down to Ebert's thumbs up on this one. Oh. Said it was a joyful but empty mixture of Irish kids and black American soul music. Irish hooey, Roger. Irish hooey. All right. Well, those are the quotes, Alex. Take us to Contrarian's Corner. It is your choice if you want to do it in a musical way or not. Well, one of the first songs that plays in here is Needles and Pins, uh, which I probably should have looked up who originally wrote that song. But the Ramones have a fantastic cover of that that it made me look up and listen to because it's so good. Is it the song that inspired X's and O's? I, I, I couldn't tell you. Needles <laughs> and Pins is a rock song credited to American writers Jack Nietzsche and Sonny Bono. All right. And Bono is Irish. So I see the connection there. Fuck off. <laughs> uh, all right. So it takes a little while to figure out where we're going. We do see just kind of this cliched version of Ireland, just this town square with a lot of people yelling, some people singing. I do appreciate this movie doesn't depict all Irish folk as just belligerent drunks. The The drinking is kept under wraps, I feel. What is it that it depicts? Just the, the overall working class charm? I guess everyone's poor and miserable. But but in a in a happy delightful way. There's a Disney version, it's like the Disney live action version of Ireland. That's the thing. Like 
the music can save the soul type shit. Well, we may not have money, but at least we have each other and soul music. <laughs> we have so little that we have to borrow from somewhere else to fill our lives with hope. Uh, this is, uh, I think that if you watch enough movies, you've come to recognize this as kind of a cheap shortcut to relatability, right? You you set your characters in this type of scenario where they're they're working class. Therefore, you are instantly aligned with them. They must be good because they have it rough. All these kids are well, kids. I don't know how old are they. Mid twenties. Right? I was trying to figure that out too because, like, I guess most of them are out of high school. The one kid talks about wanting to date a girl in high school, though. Right. Uh, well, he talks about sexually fetishizing about her. <laughs> so it's a little more problematic than that. We do have our Wooderson character too, Joey the Lips Fagan, mm-hmm. who's like maybe 60. 60? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a, a cornucopia of age range. But, but what I was going to say is like all these kids or all these. 20 somethings uh they're they're on unemployment usually when a movie starts Can with that, relate brothers <laughs> yeah <laughs> but don't you feel manipulated did, now that did they- ai take y'all's jobs too <laughs> <laughs> well they're not even on strike they're gleefully lining up for for their unemployment checks that is like a damning visual when it shows the unemployment line and it's just you know like fucking gas stations after 9-11 or you know <laughs> the chicago or new york airport on christmas eve or uh no what's the busiest travel day before thanksgiving so as our friends at wikipedia always tend to do i guess it'll help just kind of get us on a on a straight path here julio in the north side of dublin ireland jimmy rabbity is a young music fanatic who aspires to manage an Irish soul band in the tradition of the 1960s African-American recording artist. He places an advert in the local newspaper and holds auditions in his parents' home. After being deluged by several unsuitable performers, Jimmy decides to put together a band consisting of friends and people he encounters. Lead singer Deco Cuff, guitarist uh, Outspan Foster, keyboardist Stephen Clifford, alto saxophonist Dean Frey, bassist Derek Scully, drummer Billy Mooney, and female backup singers Bernie McLaughlin, Natalie Murphy, and was it Imelda Quirky? Quirk? Uh-huh. Jimmy, Jimmy then meets trumpeter Joey the Lips Fagan, a veteran musician who offers his services and has unlikely stories about meeting and working with famous musicians. Joey names the band The Commitments. So, um, Two years later, we would get Wayne's World 2, which is the greatest comedy of all time. And while Joey Fagan, Johnny Murphy, is not in that movie, we do get Del Preston, who's basically this character, who (laughs) maybe at one point in time had something to offer the music industry, but basically is just a pathological liar about these encounters that he's had with these celebrities. Anyway, watch Wayne's World 2. Incredible. (laughs) Watch the commitments first so you can get Alex's transition. <laughs> and, and, and was one of the names they were floating around. All right. So first of all here, Jimmy, Jimmy, how the fuck are you? Like, that's basically how they all greet him. <laughs> you gobshite. So he wants to manage it. Like, it, it's not that fun of, like, him putting a band together because he's not even going to play. You know, right? Tom, Tom Hanks and that thing you do, like the kind of dickhead who's like, you go here, you do that, you do this. This guy has no idea what he's doing. And what's uh, we did the rocker, which is a great example of like some young mm-hmm. kids putting together a band. And I was also thinking of like 
you know, to a lesser extent, School of Rock, where you put all this together. The School of Rock would not have been anywhere near as fun if Jack Black didn't perform in the band. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, but you, you got it right the first time, Alex. This is that thing you do, only wider. And there's no original songs. They're all covers. <laughs> it's like Tom Hanks watched The Commitments, and he's like, I can do better than this. And then assembled his own team, which was like half the number of uh, musicians, but three times the talent because they came up with their own shit. Uh, you're right. That thing you do does not... Uh, Hanks is there, but it's about Spartacus. It's it's about one of the musicians, somebody that actually has the talent to play an instrument. Here, they, for some reason, Alan Parker decided to focus his story on the guy that does nothing but, I guess, talk. <laughs> Try to be inspirational to all these other people uh, that, that want to be part of the band. It, it's not as exciting. It, it would be so much different if he did, you know, at least backup vocals or something. But Jimmy, whenever... They perform, and half this movie is them performing. Jimmy's just in the background, kind of like nodding his head, looking at the crowd. Like, what's what, where's the drama in that? And I understand it's the gimmick of the movie, and on the surface, it's supposed to be kind of tongue in cheek and ha ha ha, isn't that cute? But come on, soul music from Ireland. <laughs> we have you two, <laughs> who's you know arguably the greatest stadium rock band of all time. Easily dismissed in like one line, I think, in this movie. Sinead O'Connor, which, you know, rest her soul and uh, gets quite a few shout outs in this. And while her voice and her music had a very deep passion and there was soul to it, it wasn't soul music. And so the idea here that these white nerds are going to be James Brown or Otis Redding is just like... (laughs) I don't know. Maybe it was kind of more cute in the early 90s, but watching it now, it's uh, not even watching it now. Watching it for the first time, I think if I watched this at any point of adult mind, I would have been like, it's like, you know, someone from Maine trying to say their barbecue is better than here in Texas or, you know, they have better Tex-Mex food there. It's just like, come the fuck on, dog. Don't they call themselves the saviors of soul? <laughs> Be like Texas trying to say they have better seafood than fucking California. It's just... Come on, you're lying to yourselves here. Yeah, they they say they're the saviors of soul, and there's some pretty problematic dialogue about uh, them viewing themselves as black people. And it's um, you think that's supposed to be funny? I mean, we we'll get into it God, now. I hope so. The, the, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a better alternative than it intentionally trying to be problematic. But when they're forming this band, all the the people that Jimmy enlists say, you know the that's music that traditionally black people have made and you know they're we can't do that they're better at it than we are and he basically compares them to black people in a room full of white people which (laughs) is something i'm sure donald trump has done in an address to his (laughs) psychotic followers but the irish are the blacks of europe and dubliners are the blacks of ireland and the Northside Dubliners are the blacks of Dublin. So say it once, say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. Uh, one of the reviews I read on Letterbox did say that some of the comparisons or analogies are like um, emboldening that tries to transpire in this movie has aged horrendously. And I wouldn't even argue that. I would argue in 1991, it probably was like, what the fuck are these white kids talking about? But Jimmy convinces them. 
a few scenes later, they're actually proclaiming that they're black and they're proud <laughs> as they're playing music. And I guess it's supposed to be funny because like the this little kid looks at him like, what are you talking about, man? It's quite possible, though, that they really don't even know what the black person looks like. Most people in that town in Ireland, because there's none in the movie. I think the closest we get is uh, James Brown on a TV. As we mentioned, there's a bunch of auditions. There's punks. There's, you know, burnouts. There's uh, a guy that shows up dressed like Boy George who gets the door slammed in his face. And yeah, ha 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 ha. Uh, we did already mention Cole Meany, though. When he shows up, I was like, all right, business is picking up. He plays Jimmy's dad. And once he finds out that a band's being formed, that his son's putting together a band, begins crooning Can't Help Falling in Love by Elvis. And proclaims at one point Elvis is God. And in easily the best visual joke of the entire movie, which is ruined because they come back to it again, uh, in their house. (laughs) There's a picture of Elvis. I I can't if I remember off the top of my head, it's the the picture that was used for the stamp uh that hangs above the picture of the Pope, and that that was very funny to me. Because the first time you see it's in the background, but then they have to do the family guy thing of they come back to the joke and put it right in your face then uh, they have uh, fagin going like i noticed that you have elvis above the pope and it wouldn't be proper to make a movie of any european culture without le- at least one les mis uh reference in there <laughs> did you catch that i dream he'll come to me that we will live the years together but there are dreams that cannot be of course I did. I'm surprised that you did. Yeah. Oh, is that because you, you watched the Oscars when Anne Hathaway won her Oscar for performing that song? Did she perform it at the Oscars? Uh, maybe not. But, but no, it might have been part of the clip when they announced her, her I've nomination. I've watched that numerous times because that's really powerful. That that movie ain't for me. That story ain't for me. But that uh, her performance of that song is quite powerful. And, uh, Single shot. Well, Tom Hooper. Yeah, yeah well... <laughs> we don't have to talk about him. Was it Susan Boyle? Was that the woman's name who made that mm-hmm. song really famous yeah. for a period of time? Yeah. So there you go. Europeans, you know, they don't they don't have as much as we Americans, Julio. So they gotta <laughs> they gotta stretch it when they can. <laughs> well, speaking of stretching, that they, that they, audition they don't have sequence. that thing you do. <laughs> That's true. But that audition sequence goes on forever. It's a solid like what ten minutes at least. Goes and- on forever is the theme of this movie. Yes, but did you find it weird that we spend so much time on these auditions and none of those people end up in the band? Like, it's really 10 minutes of rejection. It's like a fucking waste of time. <laughs> like, even worse, like, the guys that end up in the band, we don't even see them audition. Like, after the auditions, he shows up, uh, uh, what's his name, Jimmy, shows up to uh, to their next meeting and says, hey, this guy plays the sax. Well, it would have been nice to see him audition. <laughs> And the main thing is, too, of like all the auditions are going shitty. So you just expect Jimmy's going to be like, well, God damn it. I'm just going to have to do this myself. But nope, <laughs> he still just wants to be a manager. And the through line of the movie, I guess, or the, the constant is that we keep coming back to Jimmy interviewing himself for, I don't know, Rolling Stone or Spin or whatever the magazine would have been at the time. MTV News. And as someone who is... I'll admit I when I'm alone and like doing shit I talk to myself like not like in a weird like <laughs> kill John Lennon kind of way but like uh <laughs> do you interview yourself because I, I 
I'll find that adorable. <laughs> this is safe space, Alex. You can tell me. I've never interviewed myself, but sometimes I'll just say out loud, like, uh, oh, we don't have any mustard. I, I need to get some. Or uh, <laughs> if a movie quote comes to mind and I'm by myself, I'll just say it out loud. Uh, and, you know, like, like the TV. That, that's not what he's doing in this movie. <laughs> no, that's what I mean. Like if I'm listening to an interview with somebody, I'll be like, oh, fuck you. Or, yeah, like, damn right. I mean, like, you know, kind of uh, testifying. I've never played myself in, I guess he's still in first person, but he's interviewing himself also, and it's um, it's a bit unsettling. In your wildest dreams, Jimmy, did you ever think you'd be this big? To be honest, Terry, I did. Even in the early days. So we already mentioned Joey Lips. Joey the Lips. He shows up on like a, a dirt bike or a sports bike and... Uh, the other thing is too, he shows up really like, like a prophet, and <laughs> says Jesus sent him and all this shit, or God sent him, and you think he's gonna be this big like religious influence throughout the movie, but that religious part of it's dropped almost immediately. Instead, he becomes a fuckboy. <laughs> Instead, yeah, he's just really troublesome and ends up having sex with one of the younger girls in the the band with uh, all three. Yes, I'm sorry, the younger girls in the band. <laughs> now, this actually was funny. He Cole Meany's like, what do he say? And he's uh, Jimmy responds that God sent him. And Cole Meany looks back and goes, on a Suzuki? I thought that was <laughs> really good. This didn't strike anyone as problematic, but this dude is easily in his 60s, wants to hang out with these, <laughs> you know, uh, young adults teetering between 16 and 20. And you know he's he's Matthew McConaughey and he's Wooderson. Yep. Instead of seeing seniors graduate, he just moves on. He he is the one that graduates from band to band. So he gets older, but the band <laughs> the band groupies stay the same. We get the big reveal of them naming the band, and it's it's somehow more annoying than if they had just said we're going to be the commitments because it's the big meeting and the girls are coming in. Uh, they're being led to. You know, the meeting room, it's like an, you got to climb over a fence to get there. So it's just all the dudes in here. And Jimmy explains that Joey's got a name for us. And he goes, that's right. And then it cuts to the girls climbing over the fence. And then it comes back into the, the garage or wherever they're in. And all the guys are going, the commitments, the commitments, what? <laughs> and then Joey says, yeah, it's the name of the movie, fuckhead. Exactly. Why would you call the movie? What would you spoil that moment? Why did they build it up like a big reveal when we already knew? Anybody watching the movie knows the title of the movie. So you know they're going to be called The Commitments. What I wanted to know is how they got to that name, right? We know how the the Oneaters became the Oneaters and then later the Wonders. But we don't get that. It's just like, oh, The Commitments because Fagan says so. There's no mystique. Again, it's we take the parts we're given, and you and I are able to put together a better movie. He could have just waited till the end, and you know they could have been the end, and and because he the obsession was being a the, so they could have been the kids or something. And then at the end, he rallies them all together, and he explains that if they're going to make it work, it's going to take commitment. And then everyone's kind of quiet, <laughs> like that's it. Who would be that? Who would say that's it? Deco. Yeah, yeah, that would be his moment of realizing it's bigger than he is. Or that's when Pickett walks in instead of the boy who cried wolf ending that they pull off. That's where Wilson Pickett walks in. He goes, oh, so you must be the commitments. And, <laughs> and then they all look at each other and then fucking, I don't know, 
Rock the Casbah starts playing. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that's a Mustang they, Sally. Mustang Sally. Yeah, the Clash is British, so uh, nothing compares to you. By Sinead O'Connor starts playing. <laughs> no, fuck it. You too, with or without you. Not a single U2 song in this soundtrack. What a waste. Well, on that uh, $15 million budget they had, they would have had to add about $20 million extra. <laughs> Bono, notorious good guy, Bono. Notorious humanitarian. I think that he could just do his, his one good deed for the year would be to let them pick a couple songs from the U2 catalog. Fuck, I'm blanking on the word I need right here, but he is... Uh... A guy who's done so much good, but still seems like such a disingenuous douchebag. It's a it's a strange <laughs> dichotomy with Bono. This is where I started to get worried because now that they're getting more comfortable as a band, they start literally like singing in the streets and in their everyday life. And uh-huh. I was like, oh, God, is this going to be like, you know, flash mob dancing now? And <laughs> it doesn't quite get there, but it's, no. it's close. They, uh, you know, just just in case you missed it, the fact that they're all working class. What we get is a montage of them sort of rehearsing, but at their place of work. So yeah. uh, one of them, I don't know, who, Mikey, whatever his name is, one of the originals, one of the first few people in the band. What is he doing? Is he cleaning chickens or something while he's practicing with his guitar? He's surrounded by carcasses, his uh, place of work. And then uh, the three girls, they're washing clothes. Is that They're doing some sort of chore while they're also practicing their dance moves. It's about 10, 15 minutes of B-roll. Yes. Alan Parker just let the camera go. He, he looked at his uh, AD. I'm like, all right, you got it for the day. I'm going to go. I'm going to go have some barbecue. I heard that that's good from Texas. <laughs> but this is where they sing uh, Destination Anywhere, which like many of the songs in this soundtrack comes up more than once. By the way, the word was paradox. I came to mind. <laughs> Bono is a paradoxical individual. There's this montage, and since we're talking about the gals and the band, it's as good a time as any to bring up Bernie. Was that her name? Bernie is played by Brona Gallagher. And I looked at her, and I was just to the point of crestfallen that I couldn't place <laughs> where I know her from. So she was in Star Wars Episode One. I found that in her credits. I have no idea. I can't place her in that. But what I did find, I was finally able to put my finger on it, was her role after the commitments. It was in 1994, and she played the role of Trudy. And she was present for one of the most iconic scenes in the history of American cinema, Julio. Oh, God. Think of 1994. Think of a character named potentially Trudy. And... She has, I think. Oh, I know. You don't have to say anything else. Okay. She has all that shit in her face. <laughs> <laughs> Man, long way from Ireland. Yes. So she's the one that, because I could just see her face, because her first shot in the movie is that close up of her just listening to um, Roseanne Arquette talk about all mm-hmm. her piercings. And she just has that thing where she like is ripping the bong and just kind of like shakes her head, like, uh huh. And, you know, she's there for that whole scene where Uma Thurman gets the, the shot in the heart. So okay, if you're not if you're not with us yet, we'll put you out of your mystery. Alex is talking about Pulp Fiction. Oh, I didn't even name it. I just jumped right <laughs> into it. Yeah, I, I knew I knew her from somewhere and that was it. And I kind of shouted Eureka when I came across it. 
Uh, she almost she almost went on a date with Travolta, and I I got it wrong. I apologize to all you Tarantino heads. The one with the all one the shit in her face the, is uh, Jodie. Yeah, yeah, Roseanne yeah, Arquette. Yeah. Roseanne Arquette. Yeah, Roseanne Arquette is the one that has all the piercings. Uh, Patricia Arquette in Pulp Fiction would be a much different story. <laughs> well, you see how they use that gun to pierce your ears? They don't use that to pierce your nipples, do they? All right, so the 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 gals here in the band, the vocalists. Um, so one of them has a career ahead of herself. <laughs> the backup vocalist, they all learn how to sing really quickly. They get really good really quick, which in my experience is not usually how that works. I think Justin Bieber was able to sing when he was like four, and you know your taste ways and your your prodigies there. Liam Gallagher was in his teens and whatnot. These gals just kind of overnight put it all together. It's like that scene in Walk Hard where. They're, they perform <laughs> walk hard for the first time. And they don't know the words that are coming next, but they all sing it perfectly. It's, well, uh, I think that that applies to everybody in the band, though. It's even... Uh, touche, touche. Deco, right? Like, we, before he becomes a frontman, we just see him singing at a wedding. And it's not like he's doing a spectacular job. All he's doing is he's not inhibited because he's drunk. And then somehow... A week later, he not only has the voice, but he has the confidence of, of somebody who's been doing this for 30 years. And the same thing applies to the girls. Jimmy goes to uh, to Bernie because he tells her that he knows she has a good voice. And, uh, well, he recruits uh, Imelda because she's hot. And then Bernie recommends Natalie because Natalie also, you know, she says that she has a good voice. So if you want to give the movie a little bit of credit, they had the raw material. But then it's just such a fast forward to them being uh, a band that may be rough around the edges, but still has so much, they behave like they have so much more experience than they really do. You you wouldn't believe that these people just met. Even that thing you do, you, they establish that the Oneaters have been playing for a while before mm-hmm. Spartacus joins them. It's like a Walk the Line when Joaquin starts playing. I believe it's Folsom Prison Blues that he does. And the band members are like, we don't know this song. And he's like, just follow me. And then so they play just like really rudimentary chords behind it. But these guys are all playing these really complex uh, soul songs. You know what, Alex? It's it's our fault because we did not take that montage seriously. That montage. <laughs> that was two years. The key. Yeah. <laughs> so at these practices, though, Jimmy's intent on removing all of the authenticity of the Irish like influence of this. Because he corrects him. He's like, say these words like Americans would say them. And that kind of takes away any of the novelty uh, of all, of these Irish folk playing soul music. He's one step away from telling them to do blackface. Don't use your own accents. It's Royd Sally Royd, not Royd Sally Royd. Royd Sally Royd. From the top. And before I forget, what's the deal with uh, Joey the Lips' m- mom? Is that the, who that creepy old lady is? Is that that his mom? I don't know. He says that she's not well, that that's why he came back to Dublin. He'd been just traveling the world, walking the earth. And then, uh, why are you back here? Because my mom's sick. That's a terrible Irish accent. <laughs> I I thought I could do it. And then halfway through, I realized it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> but anyway, his mom is sick. And I thought that they were setting us up for a tragedy. At some point, we know the formula, right? They're going to be riding a high and then Joey's gonna get the news that his mom passed away and then he's gonna have to leave the band or something uh no the mom makes it longer than Jimmy what the, what happened what's the point 
the commitments. What's the point? <laughs> the tagline. Lots of meandering, lots of practicing, and just kind of getting us from A to B and, and definitely taking the scenic route. A lot of Mustang Sally. Mustang Sally! Yes. We get to the first gig. This is my, my note here about Jimmy. He's not even in the band. Um, <laughs> I did laugh about their dispute about spelling heroin because they're playing like a benefit that's uh, for an anti-heroin campaign. And heroin and heroin, obviously, there's two different words. The, the female hero in a story is heroin with an E, and then the shit you shoot up is <laughs> without the, the e. substance that ruins your life. Yes, and so they were arguing about how to spell it, and I've I've had that problem with spell check several times before, so I laughed at that. And then when they reveal the banner, then they just like painted white over the E on the end. I thought that was a really <laughs> funny reveal, but it goes awry. They it doesn't do very well. The sounds all fucked up. The lead singer ends up getting electrocuted and um, it's a farce. You would think here, this is where they fight and disband, not the end of the <laughs> fucking movie when they just had their most successful show. Right. This is, but it's not the lead singer. The lead singer gets somebody else electrocuted because he's holding the, the mic stand and then does he some like sort of flourish. The guitar with it and then it like blows mm-hmm. up on the dude. Yeah, my bad. You're right. I don't blame you, though, because by now we have 20 people in the band, I think, and it's really hard to tell them apart. So I was I knew that something had happened. I couldn't tell who it had happened to. And even after they rolled the kid out in the hospital, I was like, I'm not sure who this guy is. I know it's not Jimmy and I know it's not Deco and it's not one of the, the girls that do backup singing. After that, it gets it gets fuzzy. Yeah, they're slowly becoming the polyphonic spree with all their band members. <laughs> It's like, uh, I don't know if you've seen the the DVD sets for Lost. Uh, you know, season after season, the cast kept growing. But the the DVD sets, the people behind the DVD sets, they, they were committed to the bit of having the entire cast on the, on the cover. And so by the time you get to season six of Lost, it's like 30 people, just single line across from, from one end to the, of the box to the other. And that's how it felt watching this movie as, as Jimmy kept recruiting people. Like, oh, now you're going to do security. Now you're going to do a saxophone. Now you're going to do drums. And you just keep getting more and more uh, people for the poster. Like, have you seen the poster for the movie? Yeah. <laughs> it looks like a march. Like somebody's looks- protesting something. <laughs> It looks definitely like uh, an album cover for, for a ska band. That's for sure. Because ska bands <laughs> definitely specialized in having just 9 million people. I think Real Big Fish often had more people on the stage than they did in the crowd. <laughs> Which, of course, is not true. Real Big Fish was kind of a big act for a while. But got to get jokes off, baby. Look at him. He eats like a pig. He's such a prick. Hasn't got the voice of a prick, though. Joey says it belongs to God. Our singer here, Deco, is a bit of an ass. <laughs> he never gets his comeuppance, though. Well, I mean, he does, and then the movie rewards him with something even better. But he gets oh, his yeah. ass kicked. He does get the shit beat out of him at the end. But then it turns out that he became the most successful musician of the whole bunch of them. We get it, Parker. What, what does that tell you? <laughs> you got to be an asshole, take your licks, and then keep moving. Eventually, you'll be rewarded. The This guy, Deco... Did you hate him from the beginning or did you just grew to hate him as the movie went on? He seemed like a guy who was supposed to be there to be like the the jackass, like the bad guy. And then he took it too seriously (laughs) as the movie kept going. 
I like, just, I, I thought he was supposed to be the guy that like almost was the comic relief, which is something that comes into play later in the movie. But yeah, I never bought him as like the leading, like the lead singer of the band. Yeah, I think it would have been funny if you don't make him an asshole. You just make him deluded because he keeps talking about my fans and my band. And if you keep that, but don't make it malicious, because it gets to the point where he's doing it, knowing that it upsets people. But if it, it would be, I think, a lot more enjoyable. He's just this doofus that that really has fame go to his head, but it doesn't turn him into an asshole. It's just like, oh, now this guy thinks he's he's really he's an actual star, uh, when really all he is is the guy at a karaoke that tries too hard. You know what oh, I'm talking yeah. about? He, the guy who grabs the mic with two hands and has his eyes yep, closed. Yeah, closes his eyes. Yep. Uh, Hugh Grant in about a boy wouldn't like him. It's I know him from the first time that they sing, of course, Mustang Sally. Mustang Sally! I knew. I was like, what is he doing with his face? Why can't he just sing like a normal person? He's trying to mimic those tapes he, that he was shown, I guess. Oh, yeah. It wants to be James Brown. I like when uh, James Brown went down to one knee and Decker goes like, oh, I can't do that. I'll kneecap myself. <laughs> Hard to Handle, a song by Otis Redding. And I think what most people of our age range would be familiar with, more familiar with, is the Black Crows cover. That's the one that I'm more familiar with. Uh, I mean, I know the writing one, but... Um, I played it in Guitar Hero Aerosmith. There you go. And basically, the, the cadence of this one definitely feels more like the Black Crows version. Uh, is it an awesome, awesome song? It is from the tremendous album, Shake Your Money Maker, uh, which... Was from 1990, maybe 89. Also featured Talks to Angels, Jealous Again. Just a fucking whopper of an album from the Black Crows. Uh, I hated the song by the end of this movie. They (laughs) play it so many times over and over again. When I was a little kid, I loved that album. I loved Hard to Handle, but it just it gets played out. And I was done with it by the end. I'm sorry, Julio. I was done. It's hard to handle by the end of this. The worst part is that next time you hear it in in the outside world, you're going to think of the commitments. Quite sad. Yes. (laughs) Baby, here I am. I'm a man on the scene. I can give you what you want. All right. So what do you think about the lead actor here? Because we come upon a scene where, you know, the band's like talking about we're not professional. We don't get paid. And then one of the girls in the band, I forget which one, you know, is kind of smitten with him and goes out and asks him for. Uh, a ride home and he says like you know how would you want to share a ride with me when after all that stuff i just said and she's like i don't know you know he says i can't <laughs> fraternize with you i'm the manager and she goes well what if you weren't the manager and he just has in the most dry plain boring delivery ever he just goes but i am the manager and like <laughs> i honestly couldn't tell you if this guy does anything good the rest of the movie because i thought that delivery was so bad <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't dislike him in the sense that uh, more like I don't blame him for the shortcomings of the movie. He's just kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because he's playing a character that doesn't really have much going for him, other than for some reason they look up to him and they follow his direction up to a point. And I did think that it was interesting that there was 
this this conflict here this that one of his subordinates so to speak is interested in pursuing a, a relationship with him uh, especially because this girl Natalie is the first girl that hooks up with Fagan so there's already tension <laughs> she's hooked up with somebody in the band and now she's pursuing the the head guy that could have taken someplace it's not the actor's fault i guess that the movie kind of drops this until the very end cuz they have the scene and then it doesn't really come up again you know, it's just a kind of like a gag at the end when they're doing the where are they now part of the story. And maybe if Alan Parker and his screenwriters had decided to explore this this subplot, this guy, this poor Jimmy, would have had a chance to shine, maybe, and show us show us how he could do something other than complain the band's not good enough. But uh yeah, I mean he's just he's just unremarkable. That is, I guess. That's not what the movie required, but also the movie didn't give him a chance to be remarkable. But I am the manager. I tell you who's remarkable. <laughs> the the psychopath that they that they hire to be security, who later becomes a drummer. Yeah, that's basically where we're at in the movie here when the, the drummer leaves. Is it Benny, Duty, Sully, Lars, uh, Billy? <laughs> much like the audience he just couldn't stand deco anymore he's like fuck it i'm out (laughs) so yeah they have um i don't remember his name but yeah the guy who they originally hired security is just crazy and i guess it's supposed to be funny how short-tempered he is uh this guy probably definitely has two or three manslaughter charges against him like (laughs) if you go 10 years in the future past this movie mika mika i'm sorry billy leaves Mika is his name. Billy leaves and Mika is replaced and he learns he, he's like animal from the Muppets. He just like beats on the drums and everyone's like terrified of him. And that's funny. I think it's weird because they mentioned animal earlier. I think it's when they're interviewing the the original drummer. And they're like, What are you who are your influences? And he says animal from the Muppets. And they all laugh. Mm-hmm. And they, they end up having an actual live action animal as the drummer. What are you playing at, Parker? They get their tour bus now. They buy a bus from a Mr. Chippy, which I believe is like a, a fast food establishment in Ireland. We got a station roundabout location and a mountaintop location. Let's see what our menu here consists of. I mean, it's a fish and chips delicacy. Uh, the main reason I noticed the uh, shout out to the OSW Review. Uh, they're a video podcast on YouTube. If you're at all a fan of wrestling, you should absolutely, and you haven't already, which... If you're a fan of wrestling and listening to this, it's very likely you listen to OSW, but they're fantastic. So cod and chips, haddock and chips. Oh, we get multiple types of fish here. All right. You got burgers there, too. Battered sausage. So it's like the Irish uh, Long John Silvers. It looks a bit more upscale than Long John Silvers. This looks like, you know, this might actually be be made within the same week of what you ordered. <laughs> Uh, if we have any listeners in Ireland that have eaten at a Mr. Chippy before. And who are still listening. <laughs> yeah, that we didn't already turn off. Holler at us. Chat us up. Let us know what it's all about. So that was that is like one of my pieces of uh, Irish knowledge that I was like, ah, I know what that is. Sadly, though, this segues to a fart joke because that's what we need at this point in the movie. <laughs> Why not, Alex? It's a tour bus. That's what makes it realistic. Somebody's got a fart. And it's got to be the big guy. Fart! What? I have to fart! 
at a gig. The guy who let them practice at his bar comes to rightly collect his money that he's owed, but Mika beats the shit out of him and his henchmen. Uh, it's just like a brawl that kind of erupts, and this is supposed to be endearing to the audience. That guy was right to come to collect his money, and if he has some dudes to help him do it, so be it. This gets dropped. Never comes back up again. <laughs> the guy is dragged out of the bar. He's like, I'm coming for you. Never shows up again in the movie. And it really poses a question. What was Jimmy doing with the money? Because they established that nobody in the band is getting paid. And it's a substantial wad he pulls out there. He's just peeling off hundos. What is he? Is, is Comini taking commission? Because this is happening in his territory? So this becomes the point in the movie where Wilson Pickett comes into discussion as they have another gig and Joey promises that he's going to come and play alongside them. So Wilson Pickett is, uh, he was a major figure in the development of soul music. He recorded over 50 songs, which made the U S R and B charts and many crossed over to the billboard hot 100 amongst his best known hits are in the midnight hour, which is what they perform at the end of this movie. Land of a thousand dances, Mustang Sally, Mustang Sally, Funky Broadway, Don't Knock My Love, Engine Number 9. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1991, the year this movie came out. So there you go. Would have been fitting, but rightly, these people are below him, so he doesn't show up. Um, well, he shows up late. Because it does, yeah, it's literally Boy of Red Wolf. Because at this point, no one believes that Joey, any of these stories are legitimate. He's a pro wrestler through and through. <laughs> doesn't keep him from getting laid, though, because by now, he's had sex with Bernie while the the theme from Shaft played. And then it's uh, heavily implied that uh, he also had sex with Imelda. God bless, man. So Jimmy becomes really obsessed with this idea and starts convincing these journalists across town to come and, you know, get more coverage for it. We get a dead horse for some reason. Uh, Symbolism. <laughs> well done. There's just a dead horse. There's like, what the fuck? Come on. <laughs> so the gig comes and... I think this was one of the lines I I really like audibly laughed out. He tells the band, he's like, and tonight we're going to have someone joining us who we really need. And I think it's the SAGS player goes, Gorbachev? I, I thought that was <laughs> outstanding. Uh, but by now, they've they've kind of falling apart at the seams, right? Because the, the sax player has decided that he doesn't like the way that they're making them dress. So he's uh, now he's wearing sunglasses and he's fixed his hair and he's He's acting like a jazz player, which seems to be a major act of transgression, according to Jimmy and, and Joey Lips. Do you agree with the, the way that they talk shit about jazz in this movie? I mean, Joey definitely wants to act like he knows what he's talking about, so it makes sense that he separates the two. But yes, it's absolutely true. There is a difference between soul and jazz. He could explain it more in an educational way or more of like a, a mentoring <laughs> style, and he chooses not to. Who's to I think say, Jimmy? Really? I'm g- I'm gonna side with Jimmy on this one because at least the way he plays it is jazz is if you like riffing and you know how I feel about riffing. So <laughs> fuck Dean and his saxophone. He better get with the program. Just ask Lord and Miller. <laughs> so yeah, he's trying to play these different journalists who show up, saying he's giving them the exclusive uh, story. Played show a little tenderness, which due to DreamWorks. Until the day I die, when I hear that song, I'll just think of Donkey talking to Shrek. Um, <laughs> they have a good show. They go backstage before their encore, and he explains that Pickett's not coming. So they go out and basically say, yeah, fuck that old man. We're taking over. 
and then play uh, in the midnight hour. And they rock it, no doubt. But this is like the end. This is the end of the commitments. They just can't handle what comes along with it because there's all this infighting and Deco's letting it go to his head with the autographs that women are asking him for after the show. And as we mentioned, it causes a rift between him and Mika and Mika beats the shit out of him. And like, it looks kind of comedic because he like knocks over some trash cans on him. But then when they uncover him from the rubble, he is like, he looks like Abdullah the butcher, man. Like he's just cut up. (laughs) It's true. It's, it's, it's shocking. The girls, the three girls are just, I guess being girls and they're fighting over the 60-year-old dude, they just they suddenly seem to have a problem. It's so weird because at first, when it first revealed that Fagan was having sex with uh, one of them, with Natalie, it was all very progressive, right? At least on their side, uh, Imelda and uh, Bernie were like, so what if they are having sex? It's her life. It's his life. Even uh, Jimmy goes like, well, you know, Fagan's single. He's not married. He can do whatever he wants. Uh but suddenly it's a problem when he's having sex with all three of them. What the hell? It's like you're either woke or you're not. You're either liberal or you're not. Uh, so it just seemed pretty reductive that that's why they fall apart. Like these three girls that were friends when they came in. Now Women can't because, be trusted, man. And neither can 60-year-old trumpet players, apparently. Glad to see that that trope is still very much alive, uh, what, 30 years later, that all women hate each other and it should be shown that way in movies. <laughs> Deep down, all they need is the right man to to just bring all that light. All they need is the right 6-year-old trumpet player who just pathologically lies and can never keep a straight story. Or does he lie, Alex? Cuz well, Wilson Pickett shows up. That's true. And as I, I made the reference to Boy Who Cried Wolf earlier, because throughout the movie, numerous members of the band are like this guy's full of shit. So when he says Wilson Pickett's coming, no one believes him. Jimmy does, but no one else really believes that's going to happen. Was the biggest red flag for you, Alex, when he said that Elvis didn't do drugs in front of him? I mean, he might have not done drugs in him. The closing <laughs> of the movie when they talk about that he said he was on tour with some guy who's been you know dead for twenty years or whatever. That, that I mean, there's people like that in every walk of life. That you know, uh, Dickie Ward and uh, the fighter, mm-hmm. you know, Christian Bale's character, knocked down Sugar Ray Leonard. You know that. And, you know, there's so many types of people who maybe were on the same bill as Johnny Cash one night. And that means, you know, I toured with Johnny Cash. And so Joey here, I think he's uh, stretching the truth. He's not letting the truth get in the way of a good story. Let's just say that. But son of a bitch, he did know Wilson Pickett. And it was just too late. By the t- it, it didn't matter, though, in the end, because by the time he showed up, uh, it was too late. And, you know, what's the moral there? Or what's the message, rather, of like... Well, that's the worst part of the story. I, I think that that's where the movie really goes from being kind of a misguided attempt at, I don't know, having Irishmen play <laughs> soul music to, I guess, an accidental condemnation of the working class, right? You have these people all coming from very humble backgrounds, all struggling to get ahead in life, and then they find themselves sharing this experience under under the right circumstances. Uh, miraculously, almost, they find this guy that shapes them together into a band that is actually on its way to being successful. They, they, whether it's believable or not, the movie shows them getting better show after show. They, they all get better at their craft. They all get better playing as a team. And then 
is the message of the movie that they just can't handle it because they're working class. That, that, that that's why they're working class because the moment that they step out of that station, that they experience what it's like to be successful, they just implode. <laughs> it's it's really what happens. And and then you go to the the epilogue and most of them end because, up because yeah meeting. we didn't mention but they they were going to get a record deal at the show. Right. They were like on the verge. <laughs> Jimmy was about to sign with with Playton Records and then all this falls apart. So what's Alan Parker saying that that really yeah this is cute when when lower class people uh, get to indulge in their fantasies but really they can't handle it. It's just push it too far and they just revert to their old ways. They can't help. I, I think that that is just pretty damning of just the movie, the the people behind it, <laughs> just the message. Like at the end, yeah, the music might be good, but what it's saying about the, the people it claims to represent is pretty negative. Don't get in the music business, I guess. Don't follow your dreams, kids. They didn't work for the Oneaters. Why would it work for you? I think a better message would be don't follow your dreams if you have no fucking plan. It's not even about not knowing what you're doing. It's just having no plan. And then employing a bunch of people that you have absolutely no control over and uh, (laughs) trying to make a fucking parliament-level band of 900 people on stage at the same time. It would have been much easier if you just tried to find one folk act, dude. But Also, uh, write your own songs, maybe? Yes, yeah. (laughs) What was the plan for the, the the album that came out? They had no money. How are they going to pay for the rights to all this shit? So after we see Deco getting like new jacked in the fucking alleyway, it just cuts <laughs> to this montage of everything that happened with the rest of the band members while uh, Jimmy's concluding the interview with himself. And, you know, it ranged from successes to people disappearing. Someone became a doctor. Deco, like we said, uh, becomes a successful singer. And then it just kind of ends. And my last note is that's it. Was the the whole point of the movie that this got Jimmy laid? Because there's some um, speculation, right? Halfway through the movie, Imelda is talking to Natalie, and she asks her, "Do you think Jimmy's gay? Because he's just always so so well put together. He always smells so well, but he never shows interest in any of us." Which seemed rich, considering how much they complained when people were showing interest in them. <laughs> and then she's complaining now that Jimmy is not paying attention to her. Uh, and they're like, no, 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 he's not. But then, and then there's that scene where Natalie is like, do you want to share a cab? And he's like, no. And the final statement of the movie is, oh, they got together. Because that was, that's the final question in his self-interview. What, is it true? The rumors about you and Natalie? And he's like, well, yeah. I don't want to, I want to speak out of turn, but we are seeing each other. That's it, Alex. That was our two-hour journey was so we would get at this moment where uh, Jimmy confirms that he's, uh, interested in women after all and that he did pick up what natalie was laying down an hour earlier in the movie and that's it i don't know what we what learned takes us out which song takes us out i don't remember what is it i don't know i was asking you oh <laughs> da, 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 da. Da, 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 da. i know it's not Mustang well we'll go back and look at it and we'll put it in here <laughs> All right, Julio. Enough dilly dallying. Enough practice. Let's get to the gig. You want to move on to real talk? Let's go to real talk. <laughs> 